text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men, or before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak through your word now. God, that your the gospel of your Son would be so valuable to us that we would be so thankful for the preservation of it for our sake. God, I pray that you work in our hearts even now to strengthen the faith of the believers. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know the hope in Christ that they may leave here knowing it personally. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week we're in part two of the Gospel dance. In a moment, we'll be reminded of what we talked about last week, but I want to relay one of the things that I've been thinking about this week as... uh, Scott and I are taking uh, Church History 1 class right now in seminary. And we're looking back at some of the first believers after the Acts of the Apostles, after the book of Acts. Uh, some of the accounts that we have of these first believers is so humbling as uh, one considers what it took for the gospel to get to us today. And I want to tell you about just one man. His name was Polycarp. You might have heard of him before. But he was one of the last living men who had been discipled by an apostle. So history tells us that Polycarp was discipled by the apostle John. John would have been the last apostle to die. And here's a man that's been discipled by him. I'll just give you one quote of, uh, from him, from his uh, exhortation, so you get an idea what he was about. He was the bishop at Smyrna. It means he was the main elder at Smyrna. And he said things like this, Let us, therefore, forsake the vanity of the crowd and their false teachings and turn back to the Word delivered to us from the beginning. 
Polycarp lived in the Roman Empire where worship of all the Roman gods was expected. In fact, whenever anything would go wrong in the Roman Empire, rumors would begin to go around that the reason why these things were happening is because these either Jews or Christians would not worship the Roman gods and the Roman gods would get upset. And so there was persecution on the early church. They thought that if a Christian was accused of not worshiping and brought before the councils, unless they would renounce their faith in Christ and worship Caesar and the Roman gods, then death to the Christians. And one of the main forms of entertainment, and I know you heard this before, but when you're reading actual letters from these people, you realize it's not just a movie. It's real. The way they would entertain the crowds is they would get Christians. And it was really good if you could get a bishop or if you could get a leader of the church. And when the leaders in Rome would really want to throw a party, they would get these Christians in and torture them as entertainment. They would light the streets at night by burning Christians on the side of the road all because they wouldn't renounce Christ. Polycarp, here's the account of his death as he's drug into the Colosseum. I shouldn't say drug. He willingly walked in there as they sought him out and captured him as the bishop of Smyrna. Here's what he said as he was asked, he, he was told, all these Christians are told, you don't need to die. Look at how much life you have left to live. Just simply renounce your God and worship the gods of Rome. And here's what he said, 86 or 80 and 6 years I've served Christ, nor has He ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my King who saved me. I bless Thee for ordaining me worthy of this day and this hour that, I'm, that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, he thanked God that God would find him worthy to die a martyr's death. They were getting ready to nail him to a post so they could burn him. And he said, you don't need to nail me to the post. You can simply tie me to it. And they lit a fire around him. In history, uh, we don't know if this is more legend or not, but the flames came up around him, but they didn't seem to be harming him as they would expect. And so one of the Roman guards that was given the job to put out of the misery, the animals that were being tortured or the Christians that were being tortured for entertainment came in and killed him with the sword. 
Why? His witness in the way he lived in step with the gospel said something. It preserved something. Do we really realize what it cost Christ to pay for our sins? Do we really realize what it cost Christians to preserve the purity of the gospel for us? Before we jump into this text this morning and understand why Paul's doing what he's doing, I want us to consider those things. And if you have your Bibles, I want uh, you to turn with me to Acts chapter 11. So we can really feel the context of what Peter and Paul are going through that leads up to this situation. Uh, We get some background information in Acts 11. And let me just remind you of what Paul's doing as you're turning there. So back at verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul started an argument where he was defending his gospel because his opponents were saying that Paul went and learned his gospel from the leaders in Judea in Jerusalem and that he then distorted their gospel. And so as though he speaks with a with authority that this is simply his fabrication of what the gospel is. Here's what the opponents were saying to him. And his argument thus far has been, wait a minute, where did I get this good news? That's what gospel means. It means good news. Where did I get this good news? Did I not get it from divine revelation? Jesus Christ Himself revealed the Gospel to Paul. And then he argued, look at my conversion. I was killing Christians. I was one of the ones torturing Christians. And now, I'm one of them. This isn't man-made Gospel. This is supernatural power with the ability to change my life. And then in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1, he argues, I never got it from Peter. I I couldn't have derived it from him because he went to Arabia for three years right after he was saved. Don't tell me I got this gospel from Peter. And then 14 years after his conversion, he, he shows up to Jerusalem to talk to the leaders. He didn't get this gospel from man. In fact, when he does show up in Jerusalem, he shows up with Titus, who's a Gentile, a non-Jew. And what is Paul's opponents saying? They're saying, your gospel is man's gospel. And they're saying, if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of the Jews, in order to be saved. Paul argues, 
I show up in Jerusalem 14 years after my conversion with Titus a Gentile. So we talked about last week. And guess what? They don't require Titus to be circumcised. He's debunking their argument. It's amazing. How in the world can these apostles in Jerusalem and Paul over here on his own end up with the same gospel? His argument is because it's God's gospel. I didn't distort their gospel and I didn't even learn it from them. But when I came together with them, we were in step with each other. He says, even when I came to Judea, they didn't know who I was by face. They, they didn't know my face. I was preaching the gospel and everyone in Judea was receiving it. And so he's arguing for the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's from God. And that brings us to our text. He's going to put one more nail in the coffin here. He not only says, was my gospel in step, but he even says that he corrected Peter. You think I learned this from Peter? I corrected him. I rebuked him to his face as he was living hypocritically. So let's look at the text and read it, and then, and then uh, we'll read uh, Acts 11 or parts of it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, from Jer this would be from Jerusalem. For, for certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why would he be afraid of them? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, this is an amazing confrontation, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So now let's look at Acts and figure out what Peter has been going through. Right away, in verse 1 of Acts 11, here's what we read. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. This is amazing. They, were, they weren't expecting this Gospel. They should have been. Right away, when Abraham was given his promises, he was going to be a light to the Gentiles. But, we read in verse 2, So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This would have been shocking. You see, meals meant something different than they mean for you and I. For Peter to go eat with unclean people and unclean people, food would have been 
just incomprehensible for Jews their whole life who have abstained from doing this. And so the circumcision party, those who were trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior, but saying the only way you can be a part of the people of God if you're a Gentile is you need to be circumcised because only those who are circumcised can enter. So it's kind of trust by faith in Christ plus circumcision and follow our food laws and in our rules. So he took some heat from them, but then here's what he argues. He says, let me tell you what just happened. He says, I was praying in Joppa. I had a vision of animals that came down from the sky. And what does verse 6 say? And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered for a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. So Peter says, hey, I had a vision. Then guys show up at my door. Cornelius had a vision. He sent for me. So I go to Cornelius' house. I preach the Gospel to these Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And they believe and get saved. Peter's saying, it's amazing. The same gift of the Holy Spirit, the same baptism of the Holy Spirit has come on them as it came on me. You got some alarm going here. This is a, Satan really doesn't want to want you to hear this. There we go. Okay. So, in verse 19 then, what does he say? Now those who were scattered, are Luke accounts, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So Stephen gets persecuted. This erupts into more persecution. So, they take off, but it led to speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed had turned to the Lord. So now you have Gentile Christians in Antioch. And then verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, which is Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught many great people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, Paul's in Antioch. Here's where our story picks up. Peter shows up. And Peter had a custom of eating with the Gentiles. Of course he would, right? Salvation, Peter's learning this, is to the Gentiles and not only to the Jews. And he doesn't have to follow the law in order to be saved, but you're saved by 
grace. He knows this in his head, but then what, what happens? Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He's buddies with them. He's teaching them the Gospel. James shows up with his buddies from Jerusalem. And what does Peter do? I can't eat with you guys anymore. I'm going to come eat with the Jews over here. Or the circumcision party. Those who are born Jews. I don't want to offend them. And Paul is looking at this saying, Peter. Isn't this amazing? Peter knows it in his head, but something happens that causes his life to get out of step with what he knows to be true about salvation. The fear of man obviously creeps in. And we see that Peter was rebuked by Paul. We know that he accepted the rebuke because Paul has already called those who believe in salvation by circumcision as false brothers. And we know from the Scriptures that they continued on as brothers. But Paul's point of the text is this. And we're going to look at three implications. The point is this. The Gospel I preach is authoritative everywhere and to everyone, even Peter. The Gospel I preach was given to me by God and it's authoritative whether I preach in Judea or in Gentile territories. And it's even authoritative to Peter. Peter is not above the Gospel of Christ. Remember, what's being challenged in these churches in Galatia, these new Christians, is people are coming in and saying, Paul's got a distorted gospel. He learned it from these men over here and now he distorted it. He's on his own and he's saying no. And what we need to feel is this gospel has been preserved for you and for me by God through saints like Polycarp and it's authoritative to you and to me. The reality is the Gospel tells us the good news reminds us of bad news. First, the bad news is none of us, none of us can have fellowship with God because of our sin. Our sin has broken our relationship with God. And the apparent dilemma that the whole Bible is seeking to answer is this. If God's good and He's holy and He's a good judge, how could He ever forgive sinners? Because if He takes their sin and shuffles it under the rug, He loses His justice. He says it's no big deal to sin against the God of the universe. So how can He save sinners? The good news is Christ, or the Father sends His Son, Jesus. He becomes a man. We need a substitute. 
We need someone who lived a perfect life we could never live. No sin can be in the presence of God. Jesus comes down, becomes fully human. He's 100% man. He's 100% God, lives a perfect life. And He stands in your judgment place. When He goes to the cross, He becomes a substitute. And when Jesus dies, your sins are not shuffled under the rug, but the wrath of God for your sins and my sins are poured out on Him. He drinks down the wrath of God. So that if you quit trying to be good enough to be saved, you repent of your own righteousness which isn't really there, and you become so desperate that you realize, I have no hope. It's like standing in line going before the judge, and the judge sees sin in every person, condemned, 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 and you're standing there and you're saying, there's no hope for me. I'm a sinner. If only there was someone that could stand in my place in line, take on my flesh, carry my name, go before that judge and pay for my sins, and if that person could be perfect and give me his life and put my name on him, that's the good news. That is the gospel. You trust in Christ, his life is gifted to you. Your sins were transferred to him. And Paul is not willing to lose the good news. Because if you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law and you have to do works to get in, no good news. You won't be able to do it. You break the law at one point, you break all of it. It's a gospel worth fighting for. Here's the three implications I think we can get after understanding Paul's main point, which is the gospel is authoritative everywhere and to every one. Just let me give you one text to, to show you that. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul says, And we thank God constantly for this, that He sees the faith of the, Thessal uh, those, the Thessalonians. He says, And I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul says, I thank you. I, or I thank God that when you heard me speak, you didn't hear Paul's gospel. You heard God speak. You heard it with that authority. And the first implication I want to look at is we need the gospel because we all get out of step. Peter! The one who follows Jesus around and Jesus eats with Gentiles and Jesus eats with sinners and the Pharisees come and they're furious. How can he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The disciples are there. They see it. As Jesus is eating with them, he's declaring that the way into the people of God is in relation to me not in relation to the law. 
He's declaring a new time is here. Shouldn't of Peter have figured this out? How could he fall in this way? This is the same Peter who was the first one, as far as we can tell in the Gospels, to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's the first one in the Gospels to declare it other than demons before Him. This is the same Peter that when he saw Jesus walking on the water, walked out on the water with Him. This is the same Peter that said, I will never deny You, Lord. But we know he denies Him. And we know he begins to sink in the water. And we see here that James folks start showing up and all of a sudden he begins to fear man and get out of step with the Gospel. And if Peter can get out of step, you can get out of step. And you do. And I do. Which is why we need this Gospel. Because we all can get out of step with it. So why was he out of step? Look at the text. It tells us right in here. The reason why is certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when he drew back, but he drew back and separated himself. Here's why: fearing the circumcision party. You and I will get out of step as soon as we take our eyes off the God of the Gospel and get it on the fear of man. We'll just get out of step. You see, if Peter was seeing his Christ, his risen Lord, he would have been emboldened. He would have remembered his guaranteed resurrection even though he's killed. But he has a moment, a lapse in his faith. The fear of man rises as he gets his eyes off the Christ of the gospel. It's the same way you'll get out of this, out of step. And it's the same way I'll get out of step. We can get out of step in so many different ways. You know, we could just preach the gospel wrong and get out of step. You may have done that this week. I guarantee you, you've lived in a way this week that's been out of step with the gospel of Christ. And I think the reason is, is because you weren't seeing the God of the gospel. That's the anchor. We can get out of step by preaching a works righteousness, by living a works righteousness. Like Peter, you can get out of step with the Gospel when you're sitting around a table and one friend makes a little bit of a racist joke. And everyone kind of chuckles. And it's this weird scenario. You know it's wrong, but just to not upset things at the table, you just kind of smile and giggle a little bit. That's out of step with the Gospel. That is not true about what we know about 
Christ, what would Paul do in that situation? If I was the one making the joke, Paul would say, Sam, that's out of step, brother. That's not the truth of what we find in the Gospel of Christ. All of our life ought to be defined by it. Your marriage can be out of step. We know marriage is supposed to point to the Gospel. And yet, how easy it is. We'll be oh so careful. We'll never say the Gospel wrong. But do we mind if we're out of step with it? And the way we relate to our spouse? How about showing favoritism? James deals with this. You know, who's who's the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven? The least. As soon as we start showing favoritism, that's out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not how the kingdom works. That's when we start doing it like the world. You could plug it in. Sexual immorality, unforgiveness, all these things are hypocritical. And all of us can get out of step with the gospel. Therefore, we need that gospel. Let me just give you one text here, Philippians 1.27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the way you live. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving with one or with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So you tell me if that's not unity. One spirit, one mind for the faith. But then here's what you get. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Here's the weird thing about the gospel. If you're going to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ and in unity, you're going to have opponents. Peter had opponents. Anyone who lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is going to have opponents. You know, some people try to live the Christian life without opponents. Good luck. Jesus didn't pull it off. But what does Paul say? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What happened to Peter? He became frightened as he took his eyes off the gospel and put it on man. The second thing we can learn is we need the gospel because our sin impacts other people. Oh, we need the gospel here in several ways. Look at verse 13. As a result of Peter's actions, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Oh, this ought to cause us to want to wake up in the morning and be in step with the Gospel and have accountability in our lives. Because if even Barnabas can be led astray by Peter's hypocrisy, how many people will suffer as a result of our hypocrisy and sin? And we need the Gospel here for a couple reasons. One, 
is because it would just be too devastating to look at how many people I've hurt in my life because of my sin. I need grace. And I also need the Gospel to repent. See, what fixes the problem here? What fixes the problem is Peter confessing his sin, saying, brothers, I'm just like you. I can fall. I can get out of step. And I'm not even afraid to tell you that I failed here because my righteousness is in Christ. We need the Gospel because our sin affects other people. This is why we read in the Scripture that love covers a multitude of sin. If you live in step with the Gospel, loving your neighbor, loving others, rather than this swath of sin that's being transferred through those who know us, sin is being covered. We need the Gospel because our sin impacts others. Third, we need the Gospel to correct and encourage other believers. Look at verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Now some commentators say, Paul did this wrong. He should have taken him aside privately and rebuked him here. He shouldn't have done it publicly. Well, one thing Christian leaders forfeit is private confrontation when your sin has been public in front of the whole congregation for everyone to see. And because everyone else has been affected by Peter's sin, it is appropriate for Paul, when he saw this was not in step with the Gospel, he said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? He's just saying this, Peter, you know the Gospel. You know you're saved by faith alone, not by works of the law. In fact, you spent all this time with Cornelius and you were eating with these brothers. Why are you now acting hypocritically? What are you doing? Why are you trying to hold them to a standard you don't even live by? He's just pointing out his hypocrisy. And thank God for people like Paul. In that moment, Paul was seeing Christ clearly. He wasn't afraid. That's, that's, that's how Paul can write these crazy things that just seem out of this world to us. Listen to Philippians 3. Imagine for a moment what Paul sees once he sees the Gospel. Once he sees Christ. What Christ has done for him in his substitutionary work. Here's what we read. Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe to you. For look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There he's saying, look out for the circumcision party who want to make you submit to the law again. And he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Paul doesn't put any confidence in being popular among people. He doesn't put any confidence anymore in his own works. Look at what he says. He says, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law and blameless. But whatever gain I had... So he was a superstar in his day. He was a superstar... Jew in his day. He had gained this status. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying, how did my life change? How did I begin to quit caring about this? I saw Christ. I came to know Him. This is how my life changed. I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. That means crap. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and that I may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. That I may by any means possible obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying to Peter, Peter, you're not afraid to suffer. What do you need from them in the flesh? Look at what you have in Christ. There's no need to get out of step with the Gospel. It's a dead-end road. There's no hope there. And we thank God that Paul had a Gospel from God that he was willing to suffer for to preserve. And because the Gospel is not you have to be good enough. Then we can confront each other with the Gospel without fear. When I'm out of step, you can come to me, your pastor. Don't assume I don't struggle with sin like you. Don't assume that I'm not a part of the body of Christ like you. There's only one head. That head is Jesus Christ. If Peter needs to be kept in line, then I need to be kept in line. And you know what? It's okay if you see me struggling with a sin issue, whether no matter what it is, whether it's pride, whether it's a lack of love, whatever you might see, you don't need to be afraid to come and confront me. Because hopefully by the grace of God, I wake up that morning and I remind myself that Jesus Christ is my righteousness. That the pingbacks from other people aren't what's going to give me my identity. It's 100% from the Gospel. So that when you come 
to me that I'll be able to say to you, thank you for loving me enough that when you see me get out of step, you can help me get back in step. And my prayer is the same going your way. That if I see something in your life that is going to lead you to destruction, that needs to be confronted, that you would know that the only reason why I would do that is because I believe the Gospel of Christ. I believe the danger of sin is as bad as what Scripture says. And I believe the righteousness of Christ is as good as what Scripture says. So my prayer is is that you would value this Gospel that's authoritative to you right here, 2017, February 19th, Aberdeen, South Dakota, this gospel has been preserved by the grace of God for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. We can relate to Peter in his failures, Lord. Lord, I thank you that when one brother's weak, not all the brothers are weak at the same time, but there can be a strengthening of each other. Father, I pray that You would make us humble enough, secure enough in Your identity that we could live in close community and fellowship and protection like Peter got to experience with Paul. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that right now is just wondering, I don't know if I'm okay. I don't know if my sins can be forgiven. Father, I pray that that person would understand that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. There's no sinner outside of His grasp. Father, I pray that humility would come upon that person so that they would cry out for a Savior. That they would realize their life is on a dead-end road without Christ. That they might experience what Paul experienced. That once he came and encountered Christ, his whole life was different. Father, You can do that in our lives. I thank You for that. Help us to cling to You by faith as our only hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.